We're back. Episode three of the Down and Distance podcast. Brandon Ross, Tara Lynch. Tara, I'm starting to get excited. Things are starting to open back up, it, particularly for me. Syracuse and Ithaca, too, included in the phases of reopening in upstate New York. So getting me a little bit optimistic now. Exactly. I'm just excited to hopefully get my stuff out of my dorm room. At Ithaca College, we were on spring break when this all you know, got pretty bad, especially in New York. So uh, I've been without some of my belongings for this period of time, but it's okay. You know, I'm glad that we are able to do this safely. I would rather that than, you know, have rushed into going back up to campus. But, you know, I'm excited, hopefully, to get back up there soon during the summer, at least see the area, look around uh, Ithaca and central New York. Even the Syracuse area is really beautiful during uh, the warm months as well. We're known for our snow, but we have a lot to offer when the sun is shining as well. So plug for central New York uh, and the southern tier. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'm fortunate. I live in an off-campus house, so I was not exactly hindered from taking all the stuff out of my place. What do you still have up at school that you're really dying to get out? Um, I think just the most difficult thing over the last two months was just not having my physical textbooks. Professors were able to kind of work around that. Um, and obviously classes for me uh, finished uh, just, you know, a couple of days ago and, and my finals and all of that. But um, that was probably the hardest thing to be without. Honestly, I'm a big, you know, tangible book person. I'm not big on, you know, reading my textbooks online or finding, you know, PDFs. I like having the hard copy. Um, so that was a bit difficult, but right now I'm just missing a lot of my t-shirts because I would have, you know, lots of different t-shirts in my dorm and with the sun shining, I feel like I have all of my, you know, wintery stuff here because I brought it all home and I left, you know, more of my uh, versatile wardrobe up at school, if you, if you may. So I'm missing that stuff, but I have, you know, enough here to tide me over and, uh, you know, I was an athlete in high school, so I have no shortage of t-shirts. <laughs> Let's just make that very clear. Well, well, that's always good. That's always good. And, uh, well, with things starting to reopen, you could probably go on some more runs, get to the beach a little bit more. Uh, exactly. I know I certainly am. I'm excited for that. You know, I do have that stuff here. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of beach weather up in Ithaca in the, in the wintertime. So fortunately, I got that gear ready to rock and roll. So as this is all happening, it, it does beg a little bit of a question because we don't even know if our classes are going to be in person in the fall yet. Now, at, in Syracuse's case, the chancellor has said it will be in person unless health authorities instruct them otherwise, but we don't know what health authorities are going to instruct. So we, we're still up in the air in that regard. A lot of other schools are the same. And out in California – They've already shut down all the Cal State schools for the fall semester. And that's starting to beg a bit of a question as to what fall sports are going to look like in their entirely, entirety. Now, some, in my mind, might be safer. Soccer, for instance, might be a better bet to happen or field hockey. Football, our pride and joy is probably the least likely of any sport to be given the green light in the fall, simply on the basis of so much contact, so much tight space. Like Their job is literally to tackle each other, grab each other's shirts, and throw each other around. I'm not sure that's perfectly safe public health-wise. 
it's definitely going to be a very difficult decision for every college in this country, um, you know, deciding whether or not to allow their students to fully come back. Uh, you know, with Cal State, they're planning on going online. Um, you know, it, from what I've read, it doesn't seem like everything is locked and loaded for them to be online, but they are heavily leaning in that direction. And, you know, it'll, it will be interesting in the case of California, what happens with the University of California system that, of course, has um, Cal, the UCLA Bruins. I mean, you name it, there, UC San Diego, tons of teams who play in Division One who are in that college football business. Um, and, and, you know, that's going to take a huge toll, both, you know, financially, morale. Uh, I mean, students rally around football games, whether you, you know, really enjoy the sport or not. Um, so that's a huge part. You know, are those schools going to reopen, allow students to go back? But that, you know, integral part of the fall semester is gone. Um, will they just be online entirely? It's a really big um interesting conversation especially when you look at California and as we look at you know the rest of the country you know as I'm, I have a map up right now from the New York Times showing me you know all the different states and and who's open who's not it looks like 34 states right now are reopened coming soon we have Massachusetts Connecticut Kentucky and Minnesota and then uh, just a handful of states who are still closed and have no plans of reopening. And then a lot of states who are opening regionally, that of course, of course includes California and New York and Florida, a big football state as well. So it's very interesting to look at this, you know, map of the country. I'm a big geography person. Anyone who knows me knows that. <laughs> and I just think it's incredibly interesting when you look at the Pac-12, Washington, Oregon, and California, all are opening regionally. So what does that mean for the Pac-12? <laughs> what does that mean for a huge division in college football? It's definitely going to be a big question, especially considering, as you mentioned, it, all the teams that are in the Pac-12 and even the teams that aren't necessarily Power 5, but still FBS programs, Fresno State, San Jose State, a bunch of the big sky schools already shut down, at least tentatively, for in-person classes in the fall semester. And that could really put a shake on things given what we know there. And this is affecting so many different areas of the country so differently. And as we know, being in New York, different parts of any given state very differently. I have a friend out in Washington State on the West Coast. He lives in Spokane. And he made a comment to me the other day about how he was somewhat frustrated as to the governor governing the entire state of Washington like it's Seattle because – Spokane is six hours away from Seattle on the other side of the state, and it's mostly farmland. It's 200,000 people, but he's not really at a major health risk. He lives on a 40-acre farm. It's not all going to be the same, but you still have the University of Washington is in Seattle. Boston College is in Boston. That's a hot spot. In Florida, University of Miami. Miami has been spared to a surprising extent thus far, but once people start flooding to the beaches – you could possibly see this come open. And that's always been a little bit more of my concern. Not that we wouldn't be able to beat this outright, but that by opening too quickly, and please forgive me, I'm not taking any political stance here, but if things open up a little too quickly and we see a little bit of a flare-up, 
that could cause a problem, especially with the timing of college football season. If this flare-up happens at the end of July, getting back to a safe place where college football can happen on time at the start of September could be a very flimsy proposition. And I think one of the really important things to consider when we're looking at, you know, the reopening of states, we're looking at, you know, the, the college, our college students, are you and I going to be able to be back on our campuses? And then you're looking at the sports aspect. So there's three like key topic areas here. Um, I want to focus on, you know, an area of the country who has been hit, but it seems like not as badly as some other areas. As we've talked about, it's very regional by state. It's also very regional you know, within this country. And there tend to be, as we've, you know, established some hotspots in major cities. The South, at least the Southeast, the SEC conference area has been, has experienced less cases than areas, you know, like New York City, Los Angeles, things like that. So it's very interesting to see by conference how these teams are responding. I was reading an article um, earlier from a publication Kentucky Sports Radio, actually, University of Kentucky, um, and they were taking, you know, very opinionated stance about whether California was going to ruin college football for the rest of the country, because if they close down their schools and stay online, that will inhibit a lot of games, including a season opener with uh, USC and Alabama. So you know, with schools in the SEC who may, their states may be okay, they may be, you know, moving forward and really flattening that curve, um, those fans could be very frustrated. Whereas, you know, people in the Pac-12 who are, people in the Pac-12 who are um, maybe in high hit areas, Seattle, Los Angeles, you know, they, it doesn't make sense for them. It's not, it's not safe. It's not healthy. So it's going to be a very interesting debate. It's definitely going to be interesting, and it is worth noting that there are some rumors going around that Alabama is already looking for an alternative game to that USC opener just because there's not that guarantee. And it is also worth noting that USC is a private school. It is separate from the public school system in California, so the rest of California schools could hypothetically shut down. USC could still be open. That's possible. Not likely, but possible. In regards to the regionality of it, that could be an important part because the SEC could be fully ready to go every school by the time college football season runs around. Meanwhile, all the schools in the Northeast aren't quite there yet. The Yukons, the Syracuses, the Boston Colleges, the Rutgers. Half of the ACC could be ready and the other half, you know, it may not be. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, and what we're looking at is an issue of uniformity and it's made all the more complicated by the fact that Mark Emmert the president of the NCAA has not said or actually has definitively said that he will not enforce a uniform start date for college football so it's very possible the entire season could be completely disjointed and like three of the major conferences play and two don'ts or the other way around, or some of the conference schools can play and others not, and they have to play each other twice. It's perfectly possible that this could be part of my language, the biggest clusterfuck season in the history of college football. I think that, you know, it's just, you, you mentioned how there really is no uniformity. And I was reading 
um, an article actually from Syracuse.com and it was saying, you know, they're all going over all the different options. You know, you cancel the season, the season goes on like normal. Of course, that's the ideal solution. Um, pushing the season back to spring 2021, but that runs the risk of messing up the entire, you know, college football <laughs> season for the following year because, you know, that's a really tight turnaround. Um, you know, spring ball, of course, is used for, you know, just practicing, getting people, you know, back from injury, all of that, um, you know, getting new players in who maybe come for the spring semester after graduating high school early and kind of integrating them into, you know, the college football process before your fall season. So moving into the spring is a very interesting scenario. I don't see how it really will work, especially when you think about, you know, all of the big schools tend to have you know, fairly large basketball programs. What happens then if you're starting the college football season in March, uh, and that's when March Madness is, that seems like a lot of things going on that are, you know, really important to your college or university. Um, and then, you know, you might mess up the year, you know, the next year. Um, so that's just a really interesting solution as we kind of talk about these proposed things that, you know, are just being thrown around in the NCAA. And I think that, you know, the NCAA really needs to make a uniform policy so that, you know, some t it, one team wins a championship just because they were able to play, whereas, you know, another university in a more high-hit area isn't eligible for it because they just can't. It's just not safe. And I think that's really what this is about. It's just a safety call. I don't think many people would be a fan of victory by geography in any situation when it comes to college football. And you bring up the possibility of playing in the spring. That's something that specifically the Pac-12 has brought up a lot, given how hard California and Washington State have been hit. Uh, if you look at uh, the Big Ten, that's also been brought up as a possibility. Some of their states, particularly Michigan, have been hit harder than some others. Ohio has also been hit pretty hard at various points, even though it is starting to tamp down a little bit. But it's also worth considering all of those issues. And if you think of a school like my school, Syracuse, if you start college football in, say, late January, you will have four major teams sharing a venue simultaneously. You will have, at one point, their Division One ACC college football team, their oft-contending men's basketball team, their likely top 25 women's basketball team, or check that five, and both of their top-tier lacrosse teams, the men who finished last season number one and the women who finished number four. All of them are going to have to play at the exact same time during the exact same season, and that overlap might not only be bonkers for the schools to have to figure out, but also for networks to figure out their programmings. They have deals to put on a certain number of games. And how much could that get wrecked if college football just gets in the way? If you have college football going on, you're going to pick a football game over a lacrosse game any day of the week. And that's such a wreck to try to deal with. And I think a lot of people have started to try to ponder getting around that by not necessarily starting college football in the spring, but pushing it back a couple of weeks or a couple months and having it directly overlap with basketball to not have the same level of issues. 
But even then you get into a problem because we keep hearing this from health officials, namely the CDC director, Robert Redfield. There will be a second wave. It will be worse than the first one, and it will happen this winter. So then you have to wonder, what's the feasibility of playing anything if that's just a looming certainty? Exactly. And when you talk about teams in the north, the northeast, in the winter, you're also dealing with, you know, weather, possible travel complications. I mean, I know the basketball season happens every year and, you know, it's mostly successful when it comes to that, but it's just adding a lot of other layers of logistical chaos for these colleges and universities if they aren't open. We don't even know if the schools that we're talking about are going to be open or what is going to truly happen here. Um, We mentioned the Big Ten, and one thing that I, I found really interesting when I've been reading about them and their process is that the Northwestern president, Morton Shapiro, uh, told ESPN that he can't see a football season this year where not all 14 teams in the Big Ten play. And I think that's a really, you know, adds to our conversation before about regionality and, you know, what happens if some teams are ready and some aren't. It just makes it a, the rivalries are, might not be there if, you know, half of your conference can't play or however many teams. B, you know, it's not fair. As we've established, you know, victory by geography is, is, doesn't seem like a, a strong way to go about the college football season or any sports season. And C, you know, it's just, again, that safety issue. And when you have, you know, half of your conference might be ready to go. The other half isn't ready, then, you know, I don't think that they should really be playing football at that point. Uh, As you said, the CDC, Dr. Fauci of the National Institute of Health, they are all warning that there's something else coming that we don't see. So it makes it tough when you need to make this decision for, you know, and every college and university is, is facing this right now. When you get to July 1, which a lot of coaches are noting as the date where they need to have players back on campus for about an eight-week period to train them and to get them ready for the season because there's been no spring ball, not an extensive one at least. That I don't know how feasible July 1 is to make that decision. I, I don't know. Um, I'm not a health expert. I have no clue. But it seems like it could be too early right now. I don't know. It's definitely a very flimsy proposition and very few teams got in most of their spring ball practices. There are only a handful to actually go through all of their spring practices. And oddly enough, UConn, the noted laughing stock who's now without a conference was one of them. So they needed all the practices they could get good for them. But this also brings up, an interesting proposition because I think most people are on the same page that barring some massive spike, California being the outlier, that most places feel at least that they're going to be ready to bring students back on campus. Let's say they aren't. Let's say they played a little extra cautious. Is there a world that you see where students by large are not back on campus, but athletics still occur. 
That is something I have not thought about. So great question. Um, I think that it's very difficult to justify having athletics, particularly sport. I, I mean, every sport, right? You have contact with another person, even volleyball, where you are just on the, you're separated. You are on the same side as your team. So theoretically, if you isolated and, you know, you, you don't have to necessarily be within six feet of another player, only, you know, at the net. But the ball is going back and forth. You're all touching the ball. You're not on top of each other, but you're all touching the same thing. So, you know, I don't, that's the first sport in my mind that I'm like, oh, well, maybe volleyball. And I'm, and then I think, oh, well, they're all touching the ball. They're all hitting it back and forth to each other. So is that sport feasible? I don't know. Maybe not. Football, as we've established, is the extreme. You know, you're on top of other people. You're, you know, breathing heavy, possibly near other people from another team, another school, another region of the country. So can you justify not having your entire student body on campus or at least majors that are, you know, not as hands-on? You know, California State University system has said they might have some in-person classes for their health majors because it's so hands-on. Um, people who are in lab courses that need to be there to utilize those facilities. But other than that, they've basically said, you know, we're, we're looking at your, you know, significantly looking at this and probably going to go online. Um, so, you know, do you justify having most of your students off campus and having your athletes there and putting them at risk? I don't I know. I yeah, I think you you make a good point. I think it's not as much a feasibility issue. I think it is a very feasible situation, but it's going to be an extremely tough sell to the public to make it happen. And going to your volleyball example, not only that are they touching the same ball, they're diving and sweating on the same floor. And that's how this spreads through fluids that the body creates. Someone's sweating onto you and that making its way into your eyes, into your mouth somehow that's inherently a problem. If someone breathes heavy, spits, and ends up in your mouth, we're looking at the MLB proposal, they're not allowed to spit. You're telling me that playing sports, you're not allowed to spit? And if you do, it's inherently an unfeasible situation? Well, that's tough because that elim immediately eliminates almost every sport from being possible. So that's a really fascinating thing to think about. And, and I think it brings up some legal issues too. I mean, if you bring oh yeah. your athletes back and, you know, we saw this spread around the NBA, like wildfire at one point, like I wasn't sure how many more players were going to get it. Were some of the, you know, big names going to get it, LeBron, all of them, but the NBA kind of caught it quick enough, stopped everything quick enough that they only had, you know, a handful of players that were exposed to the virus and, and you know, things kind of calmed down there. But if you bring all of your student athletes back and, you know, the football team goes and plays somebody else from uh, whatever area and somebody there has it and, you know, football player gets it or a few players on the team, then they go back to that campus and you also have the volleyball team living there. You have the women's soccer team, the men's soccer team, field hockey. I mean, there are other teams that are living there. So then you threaten you know, oh, well, the dining hall's open. So all the athletes go meet in the dining hall and they think that they're safe because they're all in one isolated campus. But, you know, somebody is a carrier for it. And 
then the field hockey team gets it. It's kind of like lice, in my opinion. We had a big lice outbreak in my high school, and my team shared a bus with the volleyball team who ended up having an outbreak, and all of us had to get tested. Fortunately, I did not get lice, but it spread very quickly between the athletic teams because if we were going to the same school, we shared a bus. Um, so when you have that happening, you're sharing facilities, dorms, dining halls, things like that, which if you're going to bring athletes back, most of them are probably going to be living in a dorm that you can monitor. I don't know how feasible that is, especially legal issues when, you know, somebody could get very, very sick very quickly because they were an athlete and, and, and needed to come back. Of course. And look, there's probably a lot of legal implications for any decision that any school makes that they're going to have to try to justify or work their way around, try to make themselves less liable. And you mentioned a sport breakout situation. Syracuse had one of its own back my freshman year. All of lacrosse fall ball had to shut down because there was a mumps outbreak. Someone caught it and all of lacrosse fall ball, men's and women's had to shut down. And they were really hamstrung come the spring because they weren't amply prepared. They had no offseason. And it showed once they got to the springtime. And you see this situation starting to play out where, say, teams go back in July. They're all ready to go. They all get into practice. One player tests positive. You immediately have to shut down camp. And then what? You're right you're officially in the clear to go back. Everyone's healthy again. You're at a severe hindrance. You don't want to go back yet. You want to play, but say for a school like Syracuse, I'll, I'll keep making this about myself because you know, I'm a selfish person. I'm just kidding. I love everyone. Um, but looking at Syracuse, they hired a new defensive coordinator this year and they're installing a new system. They didn't get to ch- the chance to fully install it before they left. And they, before any season starts, we'll really need to have time to get on a field and hammer out the new details of the 3-3-5 before they can really put it into game action. And schools like that are in a particularly precarious situation where they don't necessarily feel prepared on top of the possible health risks. I think it's also, you know, worth noting just, again, just the difficulties because when so say we need to make, you know, have this decision made by July 1, right? For most coaches to be thoroughly happy, the strength and conditioning coaches to be happy, you know, the, the athletic training people to be happy, right? To get the season underway about eight weeks later. You know, I hate to break it to everyone, but July 1 is about six weeks away. Um, and that means that, you know, you would need to make that decision probably before that time. You'd want your athletes back on campus July 1. You also might need to have them all self-quarantine for two weeks, which would mean maybe a month from now, the middle of June, they might need to be back for a 14-day self-isolation in order to make sure they are ready to go on July 1. Then you also have to have ample testing to make sure that you you can test your athletes periodically to make sure that they are healthy and not going to spread the disease around or temperature checks. I mean, there are so many things that need to happen on a daily basis that schools may not be ready to do. Um, You know, testing on this scale is going to be challenging. And, you know, I've said it before, once we get a vaccine, 
getting everyone vaccinated right away is going to be challenging. You know, colleges can require it, high schools, elementary school, you know, public school systems, jobs can require it, but there are going to be, you're not, you know, you can't hit everyone in a week. So it's going to be a challenge even a year from now if we do have a vaccine then, which is, you know, the projected timeline at this point. But it's, it's just a, it's a logistical nightmare. <laughs> and I think on that note, we'll wrap it up and I'll pose the final question. Do you think college football happens as scheduled? And if not, think- what's the most likely situation? For me, I don't know that it will happen as we have known it. I think if it does happen, it might be regional by conference. Conferences might have to play each other and, you know, you might get an SEC champion. I don't know if you'll get a, a you know, college football playoff. Um, I don't think every conference is going to be ready. And I think it's going to be up to the NCAA to decide if it's going to be a region by region college football season or if there's going to be no college football season and no athletics in general. I think this applies to every sport, not just uh, college football. I'm kind of with you. I think schools are going to be selfish uh, to a certain extent. Now, the one thing that does give me hope is that on all these issues, dating back to when the NCAA tournament was canceled, every single step that has been taken thus far, every commissioner has been on the same page the SEC commissioner, the Pac-12 commissioner, Big Ten, Big 12, ACC. But when it comes to football, the football, television rights money, the merchandising, even if you can't let fans in through the door. Huge. That's, that's almost every school's cash cow. I don't think anyone's going to be willing to give that up, and I think that's a breaking point. I think I'm with you. I think this is pretty regional. I think we're likely to see a lot of the non-conference games get axed. I think you might see schools in conferences that are affected. Think the ACC, where it's going to be probably some level of split situation. You're probably going to see more conference games. You're probably going to see, uh, instead of a Syracuse playing Liberty, for example, potentially Syracuse might instead play a team in the other division like Virginia Tech when they otherwise wouldn't have, or Virginia, to make up for the lack of that game. Oddly enough, all three schools I just named are in the state of Virginia. That wasn't intentional in any way. But, <laughs> but you get where I'm coming from, where you might have to regionalize the schedule even more than you typically do to allow for minimizing risk and getting the season done when not everyone's always going to be on the same page. And those big games that are, you know, at a conference, those are huge losses for schools. I mean, we, we opened with USC, Alabama. That doesn't happen. That is, that's just a huge game because of two huge teams. Notre Dame, USC. Notre Dame, Stanford. Always huge games. Notre Dame's not in a conference, of course, but if they were, it would be somewhere on the East Coast probably. And you know, they're not playing the Pac-12 all the time, but they play those teams because it's a huge matchup and a huge name and a huge story rivalry game. So you're, it's just, it's going to be difficult for any college and the NCAA to really make this decision. I'm, I'm interested to see what they do. And look, you got Florida, Florida State. You've got Red mm-hmm. River rivalry, intra-conference rivalries that might not happen in this situation. 
And something that also this brings up is given the uncertainty of the next year, what's going to happen with this crazy transfer market? We're going to get into that a little bit more next week, talking players already in the portal, the NCAA's discussion about granting a one-time transfer exemption for the sports that currently don't have it, like basketball, football, and such. But for now, Brandon Ross, Terrell Lynch, signing off. We'll see you next week.